Every person has to stand and defend voting rights. Voting should be for all people. Voting rights are under attack like we have not seen since the days of Jim Crow. Now is the time to ensure national standards that will protect and expand our access to the ballot. Mr. President, we demand voting rights now. There is no excuse to not pass voting rights reform. All other rights depend on the right to vote. It is the number one issue of our times at this moment. Get this done. What do we want? What do we want? Just over 100 years ago, brave women stood on this very spot with much the same message that we deliver today. Full and equal voting rights for all. Fellas, women are going to lead the way. Stay with us. Follow the message. Keep on, keep it on, and we are going to fight this good fight. The far right is currently attempting to rewrite history. They don't want people to remember the insurrection for what it was, an attempt to overthrow our democratically elected government and replace it with a dictatorship. They lie to confuse the public and to spread division. We must resist their efforts to rewrite history, to undermine democracy. It's important that we all remember what happened and remember it accurately. My name is Rich Procida, and I'm the founder of the Truth and Democracy Coalition and the host of Democracy Under Fire. On Saturday, November 6th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, I will be leading a study of Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril about the insurrection. Join us as we fight for democracy by telling the truth. We will summarize the book and then have an open discussion. To register, go to tinyurl.com slash study. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. What this episode is about is Jesus' attitude toward priests, temples, and sacrifices, or sacrificial systems. Now, my position, and some of you may have picked up on this as you were listening. For some of you, may not have been any issue at all. Other people may have liked it. Some people might have wondered about it, and especially people in academia 
might have even had a problem with it. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know the position of people listening, but it, this, my position is, it would be a little controversial in, in academia among scholars. There are some scholars that agree with me, but most of scholarship is moving in a different direction. My position is that Jesus, as presented in the Gospel of Matthew, and I think the other Gospels as well, opposes priesthoods, temples, and sacrificial systems. Now, notice I use the plural of those, not the singular. Usually the way it's talked about, when it is talked about in scholarship among scholars, is that uh, it's, it's the question of, does Jesus oppose the priesthood, the temple, and the sacrificial system? Because they're talking about it just within Israel. Does Jesus oppose these things within Israel? But my argument is actually broader than that. I don't think Jesus is just opposing these things within Israel. Jesus is opposing these things more broadly because the whole first century Mediterranean world had priesthoods and temples and sacrificial systems, not just Israel. There were some things that were unique to Israel's temple and priesthood and sacrificial system. It was monotheistic. You only made sacrifices at the temple. That was different than other places where you could make sacrifices outside the temple and they were, uh, and they were polytheistic. But these things, sociologically, they were very similar. And in all cases, they were the apparatus of the ruling class to maintain their power and to control the people. That's how it functioned throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. So my argument is that Jesus, because of that, opposed all temples, priesthoods, and sacrificial systems. But what we, when we're reading about him, he's operating in Galilee, um, in, within Israel. Jerusalem is the center. So we mainly, not, uh, not exclusively, and we'll get to that in a future episode, but we mainly get to see him in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood in Israel. But the reason Jesus is opposed to these things, I'm arguing, has got to do with power, not with religion. And that that is part of what, what is going on here. So there's this move in scholarship to place Jesus in his Jewish context. And that I agree with. That needs to be done. For too long, Christians, Christian scholars, the church, treated Jesus as if Jesus wasn't Jewish. And this has been very useful for people who wanted to oppress Jewish people. Um, this has been gone hand in hand with a lot of anti-Semitism. Uh, and it's also just the way people tend to read the text from their own vantage point. So if you're a Lutheran, then Jesus becomes a Lutheran, you know, or if you're a Catholic, Jesus becomes a Catholic. But Jesus wasn't any sort of Christian. Jesus was a Jew or a Judean. Scholars will debate on what the proper terminology is. I'll use either one of them, a Jew or a Judean living in Galilee. He was also a Galilean. And we need to understand him in that context. But then what happens is, so people say, well, he wouldn't oppose the priesthood and the temple and the sacrificial system because these were part 
of Judaism. And Jesus was a Jew, so Jesus wouldn't oppose Judaism. But right there, I think a mistake is being made. And that is using the term Judaism, because that has a connotation for us of a religion. That makes it a religious thing, that this is uh, this opposition then, whether it exists or not, is would be a religious opposition. And that, I think, is anachronistic. As I've argued before in this podcast series, religion did not exist in the ancient world the way it does today. It wasn't a separate thing. Um, what we think of as religion was just the way everybody saw the world. It was, and it was, it, it, it uh, pervaded everything. It was deeply embedded in everything. So Jesus isn't opposing his religion. Jesus, we need to place Jesus in the traditions of his people in ancient Israel, but we need to understand that everything was political, uh, that uh, what we think of as uh, religious stuff is was primarily socio-political for them. It told them who they were, who their people were. And so, you know, which gods you worshiped, which temple you worshiped at, what sacrifices you made was all determined by your tribe and your nation. It was a political thing or a socio-political thing. And so that's what we have to understand Jesus in. He's in a socio-political context. And within that, people can protest or object to certain parts of their own tradition, certain parts of their own culture. And that was actually pretty common in the Jewish tradition, in the Israelite tradition. The prophets had objected to to the authorities, to the ruling class, the things they did, and even their institutions. And I'm going to argue that although some critiques of the temple and the priests and the sacrificial system were critiques just on the corruption, not critiques of the institution of the temple establishment itself, or the temple itself, or the priesthood itself, or sacrifices in and of themselves, there were other critiques that were abolitionist that they were they said that you know it's it's too corrupt or it's within uh, within the prophets and i think even in other parts of the hebrew scriptures you find uh points of view that want to abolish things that you might think of as israelite institutions you know and if you think of it as in a religious thing and you know that cuz a religion has a way of making us think that everything is sort of static and bound, so you, you have to be faithful within the religion. You couldn't oppose certain things. But even within religion, that happens all the time. People oppose, throw out whole doctrines and whole institutions. That happens even within religion. But for some reason, religion makes us think that that can't happen. So if you make it a religious category, then Jesus can't oppose the priesthood because the priesthood is part of Judaism and he's a Jew. But if he is in a socio-political context and these things are socio-political, then that helps us understand that it can be a political protest, a political position within Israel, and that the prophets took these positions. And I'm going to point out later a text in Isaiah that I think is not alone, but that it, um, it critiques in an abolitionist way the sacrificial system. The same with the monarchy. The monarchy you, you could think of as an ancient Israelite institution that could not be opposed. I mean, so many texts 
talk about it as sacrosanct. But then there are other texts that don't. There is the text where the people clamor for a king and Samuel tries to warn them, yeah, you, you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't want a king. And God says to tell Samuel to tell them, look, by choosing a king, you are rejecting me. God says you are rejecting me. And then tell Samuel to tell them to go on and tell them about how the king will oppress them. And he ticks off all the ways the king will oppress them. Well, that's before Saul and David and all the kings. So there you have in Israel's Bible, an anti-monarchy text that says by choosing a king, they were rejecting God. So you can have, so Jesus can object to these institutions that others would consider sacrosanct, but he sees them as tools of the ruling class, and he can have a different interpretation of his own people's traditions and what is most uh, sacred in their tradition. And I think that's how Jesus is presented in the gospel. Yes, very much a Jew and very much within the prophetic tradition of protesting and rejecting things and, and power structures that are not just. And I think it's important, again, to point out that sacrificial systems were not unique to Israel. Israel wasn't the only one that had a temple and a priesthood. Inside. These were throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, and in fact, throughout the world, you can find, I don't know about animal sacrifice, you definitely can find human sacrifice in all parts of the world, Aztecs, every, you know, that has been found around the globe, priests and a sacrificial system. Often it was human sacrifice. But in the ancient Mediterranean world, by the time of Jesus, I don't think there were any, it was any human sacrifice going on anymore, or at least it was very marginal, if it was, definitely not in Israel. And uh, what was going on was animal sacrifice. That was how it was done, and usually with temples and a priesthood. Uh, the priesthood could be a designated priesthood, people that were just priests, or it could be a role that someone took on, that a leader took on. But it was usually, uh, especially the the upper class priests were, whether it was a role someone took on or was an office in and of itself, was something that only the ruling class did. Uh, now in Israel, there were lower class priests, but but the, the priesthood itself was dominated by the priestly aristocracy, uh, which was part of the ruling class. The high priest in ancient Israel was one of the most powerful people in Jerusalem, second only to the king or the governor that was appointed by Rome. And there was a previous time, right before this, right before the Roman period, by the way, the priests were kings. So in the Hasmonean dynasty, which was this very short, this very short period of independence before the Roman period, the priests who led the Maccabean revolt, they were the Hasmonean line, they became the kings. So we have to understand that, that priests were an aristocracy and that uh, to be a priest was to exercise power. And it is a power dynamic that Jesus is, is opposing. Again, there are some scholars that agree with, with this analysis, and I'll quote a couple of them later. 
but most are going in a different direction. But that's a lot to take in right now. So let's take a musical interlude at this point. Let's take a break and go stretch or do whatever. Okay, so we're back, and so I want to make one clarification because a lot of my listeners coming from are, are within Christian traditions, not all. I have gotten feedback from listeners that are not Christians that listen to this, uh, but many that are, and, and uh, most of them within Western Christian traditions, and there is a Western Christian doctrine that has now because of Western missionary activity, been taken around the globe. So you'll find it everywhere in Christianity all over the globe now. And that is the idea that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross replaces animal sacrifice, that that's what happened. And it's actually got a name, a formal name, this doctrine. If you read theologians, if you talk to theologians, they call it penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. So I'll come back to that, but I just want to say that I want to talk about what's what where sort of mainstream scholarship is going, and then how uh, where where I'm going with things. Before and I'll come back to this penal substitutionary atonement, this idea that Jesus replaces animal sacrifice, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross replaces animal sacrifice, but. For right now, I just want to say that that is not what most scholars think. That's not where they're going. And that's not where I'm going either. So that's a separate thing. I'll come back to it. But that is something in its strict sense that I'm, that I'm talking about. And this may be a shock to some Western Christians or some Christians who have absorbed Western Christianity for missionary activity. Um but that actually, that idea of penal substitutionary atonement is one that is only about four or five hundred years old. I'll come back to it to show that it's, it may seem like it comes straight from the Bible, but it doesn't. Not at least in its, its, its strict, very literal form. So I'll come back to that. But let me talk about what, where scholarship is going. Now, there isn't one one position on Jesus' attitude toward the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the temple in 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 Israel. There's not one position, but there is a general direction in which scholarship is going from the reading I've done, of the writings of scholars who have who have uh, written on this. So it's it's sort of basically this is that uh, most scholars believe, that the earliest followers of Jesus continued to sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem after Jesus was gone, after Jesus had died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, that whether they believe that literally or not, because not all scholars are believers, just so you know that, but 
most scholars believe that Christians continued to sacrifice at the temple until it was destroyed in the year 70. Now, the reason for that is that there are a number of texts, even within the New Testament, that indicate that Christians are continuing to sacrifice at the temple. And there's some extra biblical texts as well. But I'm only going to get into five, I think, that are the most cited by scholars as, as, as evidence that Christians continue to sacrifice at the temple. One is Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are going to the temple, it says, at the hour of prayer. They're going for the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. This is what it says. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. So that's that's the NRSV translation. So that's uh, in Acts 3 at the very beginning. I can't remember what verse because I didn't write it down. But Peter and John are going at the hour of prayer. So three o'clock in the afternoon was, we know from Josephus, was the time of the afternoon or evening sacrifice. It was called the evening sacrifice, but it was three o'clock in the afternoon, so it sounds like afternoon to us, but they called it the evening sacrifice. And so it appears that Peter and John are going to the temple for that, but it's called the hour of prayer, so it may not be that. And I'll come back to that later. But that's one of the texts that is usually cited to show that Christians were still uh, sacrificing at the temple after Jesus was gone. But that's not the only one. Also in Acts, Acts 21 has Paul, the Apostle Paul, agreeing to pay for the sacrifices of four men who it appears are trying or are needing to to get out of a vow they've made, perhaps the Nazarite vow. And Paul agrees to pay for their sacrifices. And he does this to prove his loyalty to the Israelite law. This is something that he's doing to prove his loyalty to the Israelite law. He's going to pay for the sacrifices of these four men and possibly one for himself. It's not clear they all go and they do the purification rites to prepare and they set a date for the sacrifices and then Paul gets arrested before it, it all happens. So that's that's one place. Paul was prepared to pay for these sacrifices to prove his loyalty to the Israelite law. So that's another text that gives evidence that uh, that early Christians were still sacrificing at the temple, early followers of Jesus, uh, while the temple still stood but Jesus was gone. They were still sacrificing at the temple. Another one is in Matthew, Matthew 5. And that is uh, one that I've already commented on in an earlier episode, but I didn't comment on this aspect of it. When Jesus is talking about reconciliation, he says, if you are making a gift at the altar, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother, in the original it's brothers, not brother and sister, because unfortunately, people who wrote the Bible wrote in exclusive language. If you remember your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled to him and then come back 
and offer your gift at the altar. Now, when many modern Christians, we read this, we kind of blip right over it because especially if we're raised in the church, we think of, you know, the guy's making an offering. We put our offering in the offering plate, but we know there's some traditions where you go forward. Maybe we've done that before. You go forward to the, quote, altar and put in your offering there. I've done that at times in various churches where that was what they were doing that Sunday. So we think that's what it is, but that's not what it is. In ancient Israel, at that time, when they were talking about making an offering at the altar, they were specifically talking about the temple, and the offering was a sacrificial offering. Maybe not an animal, maybe it was a grain offering, but it was a sacrificial offering. And so this is when you're making an offering at the temple, and then you realize your brother has something against you, go and get, be reconciled, but then come back and make the offering. Jesus doesn't say, don't make the offering. So that is one that is used. Now, I, you know, I, I think just because it gets used in teaching of everyday life that some people might experience doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't oppose it. But I'll get back to later why I think Jesus still opposes sacrifices, but the message may be, may sound mixed to us. So anyway, but another one is the, uh, the Passover meal. The, the Last Supper seems to have been a Passover meal. And Passover lambs that you, you know, the central part of the Passover meal is the Passover lamb. Passover lambs were lambs that were sacrificed at the temple. And then you got the meat and you, I'm not sure if you bought it or if it was, if it was given away. You got the meat and you had your Passover meal. So uh, to eat, to participate in Passover was to to participate in the sacrificial system. So that's also in Matthew as well as the the other Gospels. Also another Matthew passage that is often pointed out is when Jesus heals the leper. And when he heals the leper in chapter 8, he tells the leper to go to the temple, to the priest at the temple, and make the sacrifices necessary to certify his cleansing. So I've already treated that one in an earlier episode, but I'll come back to that. But those are five of the main texts that that are cited as evidence. There are others. This is not an exhaustive list, but this these are five of the main texts that are cited as evidence that Jesus, uh, that the fo- followers of Jesus continued to sacrifice at the temple after Jesus was gone and before the temple was destroyed. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.